0: But we will be hearing Remembering Slavery, Part 2. We continue with Remembering Slavery, where we will hear the last remaining black witnesses to slavery. African Americans spoke firsthand about their personal experiences of slavery and emancipation. <coughs>
1: Progress Administration sent writers all over America to interview the last remaining black witnesses to slavery. African-Americans talked firsthand about their personal experiences of slavery and emancipation. Those who lived to tell the tale talked of confronting owners, laboring in the fields, secretly maintaining families, practicing their folk traditions and keeping their dignity in the most degrading of circumstances. Long ignored by historians, The recordings and printed interviews caught the nation's attention during the civil rights movement. Slavery was finally being seen as the primary experience of millions of Americans, not just as one of the causes of the Civil War. These precious and brutally honest narratives now moved to the center of the study of slavery and awakened this country to its ugly past. I'm Susan Stone and what you are about to hear over these Pacifica radio airwaves is an unprecedented view into American history whose legacy continues to cast a shadow over us all. Remembering Slavery is a radio documentary from the Library of Congress and Smithsonian Productions. We present now part two of our two-part presentation and hope you'll join us for these very important documents. Our narrator is Tania Stewart. Featured readings, in addition to the original first-hand accounts you're going to hear, are read by Debbie Allen, Clifton Davis, Lewis Gossett, Jr., James Earl Jones, Jetta Jones, Melva Moore, and Esther Roll. Now, remembering slavery, African Americans talking about their personal experiences of slavery and emancipation. Tiffany Cummins, way,
2: master.
3: Intended to keep word of freedom from his slaves. But Tempe's mother overheard his scheming and risked her life to spread the news. She said, mother was working in the house and she cooked too. She said she used to hide in the chimney corner and listen to what the white folks said. When, when freedom was declared, Master wouldn't tell her. But mother, she hear him telling Missus that the slaves was free, but they didn't know it, and he not gonna tell tell them till he makes another crop or two. When mother hear that, she says she slip out the chimney corner, and cracked her heels together four times and shouts, "I's free! I's free!" Then she run to the field against master's will and told all the other slaves, and they quit work. Then she run away in the night. She slip into a big ravine near the house and have them bring me to her. Master, oh, he come out with his gun and shot at mother. But she run down the ravine and gets away
4: with me. Mom and them didn't know where to go, you see, after freedom broke, just turned, just like he turned something out, you know, didn't know where to go. That just where he stayed. Mm-hmm.
1: You know,
4: didn't know where to go. Turned us out just like, you know, You turned our count. <laughs> I say.
3: The voice of Laura Smiley.
4: Well, I thought old Marshall was dead, but it wasn't, he had been off to the war and uh, come back. But then I didn't know, you know, into the war. I just didn't know he was gone a long time. All the niggas gathered around to see old master again.
2: You know, and old master
4: didn't tell you, you know, it was free. He didn't he,
2: tell you that. You no,
4: know, he didn't tell. They waited, I think now they said they waited them six months out of that. Six months. And turn them loose on the 19th of June. That's why, you know, you celebrate that day, Colors mm-hmm. folks. Is that right? On, on the 19th, you know, that's called it, They said have, they give them a big dinner on the 19th. But now we didn't know. I, say, well, I don't hide the other side of the folks, you know, feeding. We didn't know. They just thought, you know, we' just feeding us, you know. Just had a long table and just had uh, just a little everything you want to eat, you know, and drink, you know. And now they said that was on the 19th and everything you want to eat and drink.
5: Now, uh, there wasn't no school. And when they started a the little school, uh, the people that were slaves, there couldn't many of them go to school.
3: Fountain Hughes.
5: Except they had a father and a mother. And my father was dead, and my mother was living. But she had three, four other little children, and she had to put them all to work for, to help take care of the others. We didn't have no property. We didn't have no home. We'd been slaves all our lives. Your mother was a slave. Your sister was a slave. Your father was a slave.
3: Robert Glenn decided to stay and work for his former master after his freedom came. He decided to wait until the time was right for him to be independent. James Earl Jones as Robert Glenn.
6: Martha told me to catch two horses and that we had to go to Dickinson, which was the county seat of Webster County. On the way to Dickinson, he said to me, Bob, did you know you were free and Lincoln has freed you? You are as free as I am. We went to the Freedmen's Bureau and went into the office. A Yankee officer looked me over and asked Marsa my name and informed me I was free and asked me whether or not I wanted to keep living with Moore. I did not know what to do, so I told him yes. A fixed price of $75 on board was then set as the salary I should receive per year for my work. The Yankee told me to let him know if I was not paid as agreed. I went back home and stayed a year. During the year, I hunted a lot at night and thoroughly enjoyed being free. I took my freedom by degrees and remained obedient and respectful, but still wondering and thinking of what the future held for me. After I retired at night, I made plan after plan and built air castles as to what I would do. At this time, I formed a great attachment for the white man, Mr. Atlas Chandler, with whom I hunted. He bought my part of the game we called and favored me in other ways. Mr. Chandler had a friend, Mr. DeWitt Yarborough, who was an adventurer and trader, and half-brother to my ex-master, Mr. Moore, with whom I was staying. He is responsible for me taking myself into my own hands, and getting out of feeling I was still under obligations to ask my master and missus when I desired to leave the premises. Mr. Yarborough's son went off to school at a place called Kilch, Kentucky, and he wanted to carry a horse to him and also take along some other animals for trading purposes. He offered me a new pair of pants to make the trip for him, and I accepted the job. I delivered the horse to his son and started for home. On the way back, I ran into Uncle Squire Yarborough, who once belonged to DeWitt Yarborough. He persuaded me to go home with him and go with him to a wedding in Union County, Kentucky. The wedding was 20 miles away, and we walked the entire distance. I had been thinking for several days before I went back home as to just what I should tell Mr. Moore and as to how he felt about the matter and what would I get when I got home. In my dilemma, I almost forgot I was free. I got home at night, and my mind and heart was full, but I was surprised at the way he cheated me. He acted kind and asked me if I was going to stay with him next year. I was pleased. I told him, yes, sir, and then I lay down and went to sleep. He had a boss man on his plantation then, and next morning he called me, but I just couldn't wake. I seemed to be in a trance or something. I had recently lost so much sleep, He called me the second time, and still I did not get up. Then he came in and spanked my head. I jumped up and went to work feeding the stock and spitting wood for the day's cooking and fires. I then went in and ate my breakfast. Mr. Moore told me to hitch a team of horses to a wagon and go to a neighbor's five miles away for a load of hogs. I refused to do so. They called me into the house and asked me what I was going to do about it. I said, I do not know. As I said that, I stepped out of the door and left. I went straight to the county seat and hired to Dr. George Rasby in Webster County for $100 per year.
3: Was born in 1856 in Georgia. His 1941 interview took place in G's Bend, Alabama.
7: Well, now, they tell me to the, uh, year for the folk know that uh, they were free. I and mean, when they found out they were free, they worked on share they tell me. Worked on shares. Didn't rent no land, they worked on shares. Now you know, I was a boy, I'm gonna explain it the best of my understanding. They say the work on share. I think it's said to, what it, fourth or third? I think he got the third. I think you said what they made after surrender.
8: Most
3: former slaves became sharecroppers, laborers who received as their year's pay a portion of the crop they produced. Families would also have to buy supplies from the landowners. Some were forced to stay there year after year to pay their debt. The voice of Laura Smalley.
4: They let you go just as far and get as you want to go, you know. And then see, if they know your crop wasn't going to want you know. And so next year you'd have to stay to wake out your debt. Mm -hmm. If it didn't, you know, take all your horses, cows, and everything away from you.
9: Maybe with leave
4: with nothing. Leave nothing, you see. That's why they, they keep them there, you know, that way. Mm-hmm. Just so that, you know, they could get everything they had if they didn't wait. And good way. Cause some of them you just taking, give everything they had up going off. You won't They see it is going, sure enough, they beg you to stay, you know, another year. Get anything you wanted, any kind of money. But now you're going to stay there the next year because your crop ain't going to clutch, you know. You're going they let you stay. And feed you to the hives. Now, I had children like this girl here, she any kind of dress she wanted, they let you take it up. But now when the crop comes, they'll take every that crop. You wouldn't have nothing to live on, live on, you know, next year till next year come. Well, that old McCallum's right there for Christmas, you know, get this what you wanted. That's what they do.
3: The Reconstruction Acts of 1867 promised voting rights to the newly freed people. These new American citizens wanted to vote and hold office. Some actually did. From the recorded interview of Harriet Smith. Was your
2: husband, Henry Smith, uh, much of a... Jim Smith? Oh, well, Jim Smith. Mm-hmm. Was he a church man? Yes, yeah, he was.
9: What Church happened to man, you? church man, a politic man, too. Oh, my they were, husband. y'all voted in those days, Yes, my husband was there, and it was known by white folks. Well, when he got killed, the white folks were just crazy about him. That boy that killed my husband, I nursed him when he was a baby. How
2: come he'd kill you?
9: Well, he's just mean. Just mean, you know, and he, they didn't like people up to date, you know. And, of course, it was just 13 months, and the different mile, my husband killed his brother. Killed nights. your husband's brother, mm-hmm. He'd been to church. I think he went to the gym that night to carry cotton. And this water buyer sat down on a seat and hold a fast living. and sitting down talking. And when the time had come his cotton. They killed him. and They killed my brother, my husband, on the way from Cinebrake. I go right to the spot now. where why he was killed. There.
2: Shining her. Shining him.
9: Shot him all the way from See, We have a city break at home. Well,
2: what kind of politicking did he do?
9: Well, he worked for white, white people when they wanted to be elected, you know.
2: He worked amongst the colored
9: folks. The colored people didn't speak to white folks. He couldn't get in the house when he spoke hardly for white people. He had a good line.
2: And he'd round up the votes, and that's how come
9: them to kill him. People from Austin, from San Marcos, from everywhere, which were white and colored, to him speak. Go to the courthouse and speak for him.
2: Well, he, uh, did the colored folks not like him?
9: No, the colored people all went to these white people. This boy that killed him, for walked by. I nursed him when he was a baby. Before I was ever acquainted with my husband.
2: Well, what I was, what I'm trying to to find out is how come him to kill your husband? Was it over politics?
9: Oh, well, politics and different things, you know.
2: Boy, did the white folks have your husband killed, or did uh, did he just walk by and just go shooting? No, my husband car?
9: went to Cedar Break that day, and. Uh, and he, on his way back from the Cedar Bay, uh, he laid waste the road and killed him.
2: What did they do to Walter Biles?
9: Well, you know how that was. He lives up in there. You know they'd tell any kind of tale. Didn't do nothing. Didn't hang him up. But his brother-in-law killed him. Is that right?
2: Sure. They must have been a shooting lot of folk
9: up then. there. I Meeting mean, people, poor people, you know. Rich white people don't bother nobody. Oh, it poor white
2: folks. Isn't? Yes, it was poor. Y'all must all been kin folks in those days.
9: Good.
2: Well, all of you seem to have been uh, you know, Quite Walter poor. Biles and all.
9: No, they was white people. Oh,
2: Walter poor, Biles was poor, white poor, man? Oh,
9: poor, poor white person. I know I can go right to the
4: place now where
9: he's gone. Oh, I didn't know he was a white man. Yes, he was. Well, why is he was right there to want to shoot you? Yes, because he didn't like them for the boys as well, and they have speak, you know, at the schoolhouse, you know, for white folks that to run
3: for office or something. For the former slave, freedom came with a price. They had to pay with hard work, hardships, and sometimes their lives. Although the number of these recorded historical interviews are few, they illustrate a connection to contemporary American life. The Fountain-Hughes interview was recorded in 1949.
5: Now, you all try to live like young people ought to live. Don't want everything somebody else has got. Whatever you get, it is yours. Be satisfied. And don't spend your money until you get it. So many people get in debt. When you want something, wait until you get the money and pay for it, cash. That's what I've done. If I wanted anything, i wait until I got the money and I paid for it cash. I never bought nothing on time in my life. i never done it. Now, I'm 100 years old, and I don't owe nobody five cents, but I ain't got no money but I'm happy just as happy as somebody that oh, got me. Nothing worries me. I'm not, my head ain't even white. And nothing really in the there. world worries me. I can sit here in this house till night. Nobody can come and say, Mr. Hughes, you owe me a quarter, you owe me a dollar, you owe me five cents. No, you can't.
3: I don't owe you nothing. John Henry Falk was one of the scholars who audio recorded his interviews with former slaves. His work was deposited in the Library of Congress and in the Center for American History at the University of Texas at Austin. In an interview 40 years later, he described an event that made him think long and hard about prejudice.
10: I remember sitting out on a wagon tongue with this old black man, completely illiterate, down here near Navasota, in the plantation area. And was telling him what a different kind of white man I was. I really, really, I'd get in, come educated on blacks and their problems, except we called them colored folks, the colored folks. And I said, you know, you might not realize it, but I'm not like colored uh, white folks you run into down here. I believe in the right, I believe in giving you the right to go to school, to good schools. Now, I know you don't want to go with white people. I don't believe in you know going overboard board on this thing but I believe because people ought to be given good school and I believe you ought to give it, be given the right to to go into whatever you qualified to go into and I believe you ought to be given the right to vote and uh, I remember him looking at me very sadly and kind of sweetly and condescending and said, you know you still got the disease honey I know you think you're cured but you're not cured so you're talking, you sitting there talking, and I know it's nice, and I know you're a good man, talking about giving me this, and giving me that right. you talk talking about giving me something that I was born with just like you was born with it. You can't give me the right to be a human being. I'm born with that right. Now, you can keep me from having that if you've got all the policemen and all the jobs on your side. You can deprive me of it, but you can't give it to me. And I was born with it just like it, you was. And my God, it had a profound effect on me. I was furious with him. You try to be kind to these people, you see. And give them an inch and they'll take an ale. But the more I reflect on it, the more profoundly it affected me. And I realized this was where it really was. I could give them something that they were born with, just like I was born with it. Was entitled to it the same way I was entitled with it.
3: former slaves gladly told their stories. For some, it was the first time anyone wanted to know about their lives as slaves. The society around them had given them the impression that being a former slave was something to be ashamed of, something not to be talked about. Today, we need to hear their stories. For how can you know how far you have come? If you don't know where you started. Langston Hughes speaks so eloquently in his poem, Mother to Son, about what the experience of the elders means to their descendants. Life for me ain't been no crystal stair. It's had tacks in it and splinters. And bolts torn up and places with no carpet on the floor. Bear. But all the time I's been a-climbing on and reaching landings and, and turning corners. And sometimes going in the dark where there ain't been no light. So, boy, don't you turn back. Don't you sit down on the steps because you find it's kind of hard. Don't you fall now, for I still going, honey, I still climbing, and life for me ain't been no crystal stair.
2: When when did you come to Baltimore?
5: You know when, you don't remember when Garfield died, do you? When the, when the shot go off of you no, I don't think you were born. I don't think I the were then. No. I come to Baltimore that year and I, I worked for a man by the name of Reed when I first come to Baltimore. I used to, I commenced a whole manure for him. The old horses was here then. And, and, and no, no electric cars, no cable cars, no old horse cars. And I used to haul manure and around the different stables, you know, and
2: people, everybody had horses. Did you
9: ever think you lived to see the automobile? No. I never did think I'd ever live to see the automobile. see, <laughs> I heard talk of them. I heard my husband talk of them. He went north with a herd of bees for some white folks, and he seen them after that. <laughs>
5: And then they put on a cable car, what they call cable cars. Well, they run them for a little while, maybe a couple of three years or four years. Then somebody invented the electric car, and that first run on North Avenue. Well, they had a run a while, and they kept on inventing and inventing until they got them all different kinds of cars. You know. I just can't I just can't think of what year it was. Well, I don't know how I don't know how to tell you the truth when I think of it today. I don't know how I'm living.
8: Remembering slavery. African Americans talk about their personal experiences of slavery and emancipation. Only a few people alive today have heard the actual voices of men and women who experienced the days of slavery in the United States firsthand. These original recordings were made by interviewers from the Federal Writers Project in the 1930s and were then placed in the Library of Congress, never heard again by the wider public. These tapes include a dozen of the only known original recordings of former slaves. Along with them, you have heard readings from original transcripts by James Earl Jones, Jetta Jones, Melba Moore, Clifton Davis, Esther Rolle, Louis Gossett Jr., and Debbie Allen. Our narrator has been Tania Stewart. Among those interviewers who had set out in the 1930s to talk to former slaves were such literary luminaries as Zora Neale Hurston and John Lomax. Remembering Slavery, originally presented by Susan Stone, is a two-part series. Any questions or comments, you can call 510-848-6767, extension 212. Thanks for listening.
11: Every Friday at 7 p.m., tune into Full Circle.
12: This week, we are pleased to bring you an engaging interview and fantastic life performance with the Ben Onani Orchestra.
11: This orchestra is a ministry whose members come from a very diverse, multicultural background with a full repertory of music.
12: We will continue honoring Black History Month with a special segment on Coretta Scott King.
11: So join us for this exciting show this Friday at 7 p.m. on Full Circle. It's
0: 94.1 FM KPFA and 89.3 FM KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno. It's 3.30 p.m. and it's time for Free Speech Radio News.
11: Every Friday at 7 p.m., tune into Full Circle.
12: This week, we are pleased to bring you an engaging interview and fantastic live performance with the Ben Onani Orchestra.
11: This orchestra is a ministry whose members come from a very diverse, multicultural background with. A
13: This is Free Speech Radio News for Friday, February 24, 2006. From the studios of KPFK in Los Angeles, I'm Aura Pogado. Immigration reform heats up again on Capitol Hill as President Bush extends a temporary immigration program. A new report indicates the EPA is not doing enough to warn residents returning to New Orleans of health risks. And Philippines President Gloria Macapagal-Arroyo declares a state of emergency. These stories and more after the headlines.
12: I'm Shannon Young for Free Speech Radio News. A Nigerian court has ordered Shell Petroleum to pay $1.5 billion to local communities in the Niger Delta region as compensation for years of environmental pollution. Samuel Okoya reports from Lagos.
14: The court judgment is another setback for the oil giant Shell, which early this week shut down half of its operations in Nigeria following attacks on its facilities. After the kidnapping of nine of his foreign employees, payment of compensation for environmental damage is one of the demands of the local militants holding the oil workers. Nigeria's National Assembly had previously passed a resolution compelling Shell to pay the $1.5 billion for ecological damage. The case went to court when Shell refused to pay. If Shell does not comply with today's court verdict, negotiations to secure the release of the hostages, could become even more difficult. For Free Speech Radio News, this is Sam Ulukoya in Lagos, Nigeria.
12: In Ecuador, the government-imposed state of emergency has been lifted in the Amazon province of Napo. This comes after troops were sent to the region to deal with protests against foreign and state-owned oil interests. Earlier in the week, protesters had occupied a pumping station that supplies the country's most important privately-owned pipeline. They were calling for greater investment in the region. The government has now reportedly agreed to spend some $100 million on infrastructure projects and social spending programs. Residents in Argentina's central province of Córdoba rallied yesterday to protest a 200% increase in water rates. The hike was passed in December to subsidize debt from the French company that controls Córdoba's water utilities. Marie Tragona has more from Buenos Aires.
15: Throughout the week, local organizations, environmentalists, and residents organized road blockades in protest of the 200% rate increase in privatization of water. Suez, the French group controlling Cordoba's water utility, threatened to pull out of Argentina last year because of a government-mandated freeze on water rates. The provincial government agreed to forgive the company's $19 million debt as an incentive for the company to make long overdue investments in infrastructure. Local resident groups are pushing for the government to annul the Suez Aguas Cordoba contract and have proposed that users and employees form a public cooperative to manage water services. Hundreds of residents participating in the march say they will boycott Suez by not paying their water bills. Suez will soon install over 15,000 water meters to control and restrict water consumption. The company has said that users who do not pay their water bill will have their services cut. For Free Speech Radio News, I'm Marie Chagona in Buenos Aires. An
12: outspoken
15: Arizona environmental activist
12: is in federal custody after a court hearing yesterday. Evan Davis has the story.
16: Environmental activist Rod Coronado was arraigned yesterday in a federal court in Tucson, Arizona, after federal agents arrested him on Wednesday. During yesterday's court appearance, Coronado was charged with felony distribution of information relating to a destructive device for allegedly giving instructions on how to create an incendiary device during a speech he gave in San Diego in 2003. A San Diego area housing development that was under construction was destroyed by arson less than 24 hours before Coronado's speech there. But Coronado is not being charged with setting the blaze which Earth Liberation Front took credit for at the time. Coronado is being held in detention in Tucson and is expected to be transferred on Monday to a federal court in San Diego. For Free Speech Radio News, this is Evan Davis in Arizona.
12: 3,600 Teamsters Union members are on strike against Connecticut-based Sikorsi Aircraft, which makes helicopters for civilian and military use. The strike began Monday over the failure to agree on health care coverage.
1: Melinda Tuhus reports from the Picket Line. On a warm day for February, dozens of strikers circled the main entrance to the plant. The feeling was relaxed, and horn honking in support from passing vehicles was raucous and constant. The average employee is 48 years old with 25 years seniority, and health care is a big concern. Joe Rakan, a union official and 21-year employee, explains a trade-off with other benefits the workers are willing to make.
16: They understand that, you know what, health care is a national crisis, and we don't mind paying a little bit more. Just divert some of our money from our raises or our our signing bonus towards that to keep the status quo. We're not asking
1: for anything more. The company says health care costs have risen 45% during the last three years. It wants to institute a 20% worker copay on health insurance, but the workers have rejected that, saying the company doesn't need to impose those costs to stay competitive. No talks are currently scheduled. For FSRN, I'm Melinda Tuhus in Stratford, Connecticut. And I'm Shannon Young for
12: Free Speech Radio News.
13: Philippines President Gloria Macapagal Arroyo declared a state of emergency today amid massive anti-government demonstrations and an alleged coup plot. FSRN's Gurley Lanao reports from Manila.
17: Clashes broke out between policemen and protesters a few hours after President Gloria Macapagal Arroyo declared a state of emergency, sparking a security crackdown. Rallies were banned, classes were suspended, and security was stepped up around the presidential palace. In declaring emergency rule, Arroyo ordered the military and police to hunt down those believed to be behind a plot to overthrow her government. Officials said under the state of emergency, the government can also take over utilities and companies that threaten national interests, including media agencies. The Philippines was placed under emergency rule as it celebrated the 20th anniversary of a people power revolt that ousted late dictator Ferdinand Marcos in 1986 and restored democracy. Former President Corazon Aquino, who was propelled into power by the 1986 uprising, was among more than 15,000 people who defied the ban on rallies and marched to again call for Arroyo's resignation.
8: I have no intention to violate our laws. My only appeal is the same appeal I made when I went to the presidential palace last year when I asked President Gloria Arroyo to, to make it. the supreme sacrifice of resigning. And I would like to reiterate that call.
17: Arroyo's opponents warn she has practically placed the country under a de facto martial rule. They urge Filipinos to be vigilant and not to allow democracy to be stolen again. For Free Speech Radio News, I'm Gurlilinau in Manila.
13: Our correspondent, Gurley Lanao, joins us on the line from Manila. As you mentioned in your report, today marks a very important day in Filipino history. Uh, Twenty years ago, the People Power Revolt finally removed then-president Ferdinand Marcos. What are residents there saying about the president's move to call this state of emergency?
18: Critics are saying that um, the president has actually declared a de facto martial rule in the Philippines, They think that the emergency rule is creating panic among the public and that it could even spark more tensions and violence in the streets.
13: So are people saying that it's perhaps a type of military rule in practice, even if it's not military rule in name?
18: Yes, critics of the president are saying that with the deployment of the military and deployment of the police all over the capital and also in other key urban cities in the provinces, that this is practically martial rule. And um, just a few hours ago, there was a report of the police already raiding an office of a newspaper that is against the government, and many are afraid that there will be more of such uh, activities in the coming days.
13: And that tension and violence uh, in years past has been called people power and has contributed to some type of political change. Has that political change really been embraced? Uh, who has it benefited in these last 20 years?
18: Well, we've had two mass uprisings already since 1986. Uh, we had another one in 2001. This time when people are calling for Filipinos to join the demonstrations against President Arroyo, we don't see much of the Filipinos going out. The crowd is very little compared to the crowd that we saw in 1986 and 2001. And many analysts are saying that this is because none of the people who who went to the rallies then have benefited from the uprisings, that we still see the same group of leaders ruling the country. We still, we still see the elitists ruling the country and not much happening for the poor.
13: Finally, the provision that Arroyo used to call the state of emergency usually refers to uh, a response to economic emergency, not a, some type of coup attempt. Is that correct?
18: Yes, that's correct. Legal experts are saying that this provision that Arroyo has invoked is actually used to help the government crack down on any situation that worsens the country's economy. And uh, this provision allows the government to take over utilities and companies that are threatening national interests. But the government has been saying that the economy is doing well. The peso is up against the U.S. dollar. The stock market is up. Investors are supposed to be coming in. And there is a question on whether the government is just trying to use this so that they could be able to crack down on its political components.
13: Curly Lanao is our correspondent in the Philippines. She joined us today from Manila. President Bush met with Salvadoran President Elias Antonio Saca at the White House this afternoon, where the two leaders discussed the Central American Free Trade Agreement, although the main topic of discussion was immigration. President Saka is pushing for a comprehensive immigration reform program that would assign legal status to Salvadoran immigrants already in the United States. President Bush offered a bit of immigration relief by announcing that he would extend a temporary program allowing some Salvadoran and other Central American immigrants to stay in the U.S. with temporary status for another year. But, as Washington editor Leanne Caldwell reports, some members of Congress are vowing to defeat that extension. The extension of the Temporary Protection Status Program, or TPS,
19: will allow 300,000 Salvadorans, Hondurans, and Nicaraguans lawfully living in the United States to remain in the U.S. for another year. Chris Bentley is a spokesperson for the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services under the Department of Homeland Security.
20: We reevaluate the conditions in the country as the TPS status is nearing its expiration and then make a determination on whether it is safe uh, to send the individuals back to their home country or whether the infrastructure there is not in place to allow that to happen and the TPS should be extended for additional time here stateside.
19: The government determined that the conditions are not adequate for immigrants to return. TPS is a program that gives citizens of certain foreign countries refuge in the United States because their home country is affected by war or a natural disaster. Currently, immigrants from seven countries are in the United States under this status. Ana Margarita Chavez is Consulate General the Salvadoran Consulate in Washington, D.C. She says this decision prolongs stability in the Americas.
18: If, for example, they go back, the people that are here in the United States, they go back to El Salvador, eh, probably they wouldn't find the opportunities eh, that they need to work, and then our democracy would be in jeopardy.
19: The details haven't yet been released, except that immigrants whose status was set to expire in July will remain lawful until July of 2007. And immigration opponents are angry. Jack Martin is Special Projects Director at the Federation for American Immigration Reform, or FAIR.
3: It is not justified by humanitarian conditions, which was the reason for adopting this program, The extension is uh, being done simply as a political decision.
19: Several Latin American countries are pushing the United States for more open immigration policies. President Bush revealed his plan during a meeting with Salvadoran President Elias Antonio Saca, who was pleased with the decision. But critics say this is just another form of amnesty. Opposition also arose on Capitol Hill. While some members applaud the move, others say the president's decision is unacceptable. Republican Representative Tom Tancredo from Colorado and chair of the Immigration Reform Caucus, that is a group of congressional members who oppose immigration. He was unavailable to come on air with Free Speech Radio News, but in a statement, Tancredo says the administration doesn't understand the word temporary. He says immigrants never return to their home countries after they receive temporary status in the United States. Tancredo says he will try to stop this decision through the legislative process. Furthermore, broad sweeping immigration reform will be debated in both the House and the Senate this year. The Senate Judiciary Committee has stalled the introduction of the bill because of large demonstrations from both immigration opponents and supporters. For Free Speech Radio News, I'm Leanne Caldwell.
13: U.S. Ambassador to Iraq, Zalmay Khalazad, has warned sectarian violence is a threat to the future of Iraq following the bombing of the Samara Shrine this week. As the country remains tense with the continued presence of U.S. and coalition troops, a U.S. congressman who is a previous supporter of the war and sits on the House Appropriations Committee has called for troops to return. FSRN's Rebecca Miles files this report.
21: In New Jersey yesterday, Democratic Congress member Steve Rothman said he backed President Bush after the attacks on September 11th, accepting his counsel that Saddam Hussein was an imminent threat. Rothman said after Hussein was deposed by the military, it turned out virtually everything President Bush had told the American people in Congress was untrue.
20: There was no imminent threat to the national security of the United States. Saddam Hussein had no weapons of mass destruction, and he was not sending Iraqi agents into our country. But because of the horrific management of the war, really without a strategy by the Bush administration, the country, its infrastructure was nearly all destroyed. The people were thrown out of their jobs. The middle class was dispersed. Many of us felt we had a moral responsibility to stay in that country To help these people establish a stable government, hopefully a democratic government, it's now been three years since the war began, and we've lost 2,200 young servicemen and women of our country, more than 16,000 wounded, more than 100,000 Iraqi dead. Uh, More than a quarter of a trillion dollars of U.S. taxpayer money spent on this war with virtually no progress uh, in terms of reconstructing the country or providing stability. We have done more than enough, paid the price in blood and money, it is time to bring our troops home.
21: Rayad Jarrah is an Iraqi citizen who is currently in the U.S. and lived in Iraq through the invasions and has written the Iraqi Roadmap an Exit Plan and thinks civil war is only likely if the U.S. troops stay.
11: There, are, there is an
2: ongoing civil tension and clashes uh, since the invasions that are happening with so many casualties every abdu- week. Abdu- but, I mean, there is no possibility that Iraqis will start having big-scale civil war like the, the Lebanese case. Iraq's currency is like a room full of gas that will explode. It just needs one spark to explode. And the U.S. Army should not be there anymore.
21: As Congress member Rothman added, President Bush will be regarded as the worst, if not the worst ever, president in U.S. history. For Free Speech Radio News, I'm Rebecca Miles reporting.
13: A national environmental group has charged that the Environmental Protection Agency is not doing enough to warn residents returning to New Orleans of health risks. The report released yesterday by the National Resources Defense Council is the latest in a series of charges by the NRDC and other groups that the EPA is ignoring its own guidelines in dealing with the contamination caused by post-Katrina flooding. Christian Roseland has more from the Crescent City. Even if
0: the
16: truths are hard, we still need to hear the truth. Pam DeShiel of the Holy Cross Neighborhood Association says that she has been trying to get accurate information on contamination in New Orleans for years before the storm and that returning residents would not know about the severe contamination issues in the city without the NRDC.
0: We would not have known the extent of the problem and nor would we have understood its significance. And that's, I mean, it just seems... That a private nonprofit organization um, that does not have the vast resources of the EPA has provided more of a public benefit in terms of information and analysis than the EPA has.
16: The report released yesterday states that the levels of lead, arsenic, and dangerous petroleum compounds in multiple locations around the city should have triggered a massive cleanup or at least further investigation. The NRDC's report follows an independent peer-reviewed study released last Monday by Texas Tech and Xavier Universities which found higher levels of contaminants in the soil than previous EPA tests. Tom Harris of Louisiana's Department of Environmental Quality responded by telling the Washington Post yesterday that the NRDC was grossly misusing the EPA data and said that the state's threshold levels would have to be greatly exceeded before children are harmed. DeShiel says the Holy Cross Neighborhood Association has joined the NRDC in calling for toxic soil in the city to be removed and replaced. She says that soil contamination is not an issue to be underestimated.
0: Well, people do grow vegetables and flowers in their yards that they bring into their homes. Children play outside. Um, Old people in New Orleans, people sit outside all the time. I I mean, you know, that's part of our, our great culture. And so
13: soil contamination is a real
16: issue. For FSRN, I'm Christian Roseland.
13: Human rights activists have hailed a judgment handed down today in a case related to the 2002 sectarian violence in the western Indian state of Gujarat as a triumph of truth and justice. Nine of 21 defendants charged in a lower court under directions from India's Supreme Court were sentenced to life in prison. The decision has stirred new optimism for the Muslims who had lost all hope in the investigations and the trials run by the Gujarat government. FSRN's Benu Alex reports from Vadodara, India.
7: The scene was gloomy at the colony where Nayan was sentenced to life, at least 14 years in prison for murder. The television channels broke the news and women broke down. The high profile best bakery case is related to the 2002 riots in the western state of Gujarat. Two months of violence between Hindus and Muslims resulted in the death of more than a thousand Muslims. Scores of women raped and property destroyed. The violence began after a suspected Muslim mob burnt a trained coach carrying Hindu activists during February 2002. The case took many twists and turns where the accused were previously acquitted in the original trial after the prosecution's main witness Zahira Sheikh retracted her testimony. She changed her stance again and again and blamed Tista Setalwath, human rights activist who once helped her of intimidation. It was at Tista's persistence that the case was shifted out of Gujarat to neighbouring Mumbai by the Supreme Court.
17: We are really hopeful that the findings of the uh, Honourable Sessions judge will have a very positive bearing. And personally and our group we are very
14: satisfied because the judges clearly held that whatever was said against me was completely false and defamatory.
7: The court also found Zahira Sheikh and her family guilty of lying under oath and issued a notice asking them to explain why they turned into hostile witnesses. The case was widely considered as a mark to symbolize the failure of the Indian justice system following the Gujarat riots in 2002. And many Muslims say their hope in getting justice is rejuvenated. zubay Mehmun is one such Muslim in Vadodara. One thing that is
19: proven because of this judgment is that justice prevails in India. Many people asked me whether this judgment will divide Hindus and Muslims further. We believe a criminal should only be seen as a person who committed a crime and not someone whose actions are representative of his religion.
7: Father Shadrik Prakash, who has been actively demanding justice for the victims, terms the judgment as a triumph of truth. This is the first step towards reconciliation, towards peace and ultimately communal harmony in Gujarat. Let's hope that this becomes the precedence for the several other cases which need to be reopened and for which justice has to be delivered in the wake of the Gujarat carnage of 2002. After four years and several acquittals, special court conducting a retrial found the nine guilty of killing 14 people during the arson attack on the bakery. <laughs> the angle is simmering at Hanuman Takri, the colony where all the accused are from. Deserted by the political parties and right-wing Hindu activists, families are on the verge of social and financial
21: collapse.
7: Rajpah, mother of one of the convicted, is inconsolable. She is castigating the right-wing BJP party government for isolating them at the time when they wanted their support. The verdict is seen as a slap in the face of Narendra Modi, the chief minister of Gujarat, who is widely accused by human rights activists of presiding over the violence, which lasted more than two months. There are more than 2,000 cases on trial and this judgment may just prove as a transitor in delivering justice. From Varodra in India, I am Pinu Alex for Free Speech Radio News.
13: As Black History Month comes to a close, some people take this time to reflect, remember, and rejoin the history and achievements of African Americans, even as recent comments made by actor Morgan Freeman have stirred up debate on whether Black History Month is necessary. Selena Masuta reports on that discussion from Washington, D.C., hometown of Black History Month founder, Dr. Carter G. Woodson.
22: On a cold, windy day in Washington, D.C., 30 people huddle in one of the many chapels in Shiloh Baptist Church to sing the Negro National Anthem, a song that has passed through the lips of many this month. In 1926, Dr. Carter Godwin Woodson, a historian, teacher, and publisher, established Negro History Week, what we now know as Black History Month. Woodson spent much of his life in Washington, D.C., once known as Chocolate City, a hub of black intellectualism and movement building. Earlier this month, actor Morgan Freeman declared that Black History Month was not needed, causing a flurry of debate on the significance of the month. Freeman argued that relegating black history to a month is an obstacle to ending racism. However, there is sharp criticism of that view from people like Alexander M. Pajo. Pajo is the director of Shaw Main Streets, a group that partly works on preserving the history of the Howard Shaw area, including the legacy of Woodson.
20: Dr. Woodson really
0: prayed for a day when there would not be a need to have a Negro History Week anymore. And the reason for that would be because it would be part of the history that would be in all the history books, not just black history books. And, you know, there would be monuments to to African-American heroes and sheroes. But unfortunately, we're not where Dr. Woodson wanted us to be before Black History Month could be dissolved.
22: In the month of February, stories from elders like Lillian Gordon are foundations for plays and musical tributes that remind the nation of a time when racial segregation was legal. As a girl and later on as a young woman, Miss Gordon lived side by side in the Shaw area with historical figures like Woodson and A. Philip Randolph. We were the only blacks in our block at the time, and they had a place called Opportunity House that they would come and give the white kids all kind of goodies and had programs for them. And my sister and I used to go there and watch them. The people that were in charge of the program would never allow my sister and I to go. And while stories of hardships and success before integration are important to highlight during Black History Month, sometimes there's little attention to present-day struggles, says Ayo Hande Kendi, founder and director of the African American Holiday Association.
4: We aren't quite as um, up-to-date with the contributions that every single day each of us are making towards
22: creating history in the making.
2: Well, this, this um,
22: Isaac based in, in the basement of Washington, D.C.'s main library, a line forms. People wait eagerly to ask questions to historian and educator C.R. Gibbs. February is the busiest month for Gibbs, who lectures across the country on black history that people have little knowledge of Gives hopes that African American communities will use history as a tool when even fighting against the takeover of neighborhoods by developers.
10: It is critical that you not only know the history of your block, but the history of your neighborhood, the history of your people, so that you can weave all of these strands together to form a fabric that will help you fight those who would cheat you of your birthright, rob you of your neighborhood and kill your, your residential identity. I, I called it residential genocide. And we've got to fight residential genocide. And the only way to do this, to begin with, is to have a knowledge of who we are and then a knowledge of where we are.
22: From Washington, D.C., I'm Selena Masuda.
13: You've been listening to Free Speech Radio News in Los Angeles and Aura Bucado.
14: La Peña Community Chorus presents a concert of lively music from Peru and other Latin American countries on Saturday, February 25th at 8 p.m. at La Peña Cultural Center, 3105 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. This is a benefit concert to send the chorus to Peru, where we will learn and share music with the Afro-Peruvian community in Lima and the Andean regions surrounding Cusco. Over the years, the chorus has been a cultural ambassador, bringing music back to the U.S. from Cuba, Chile, and Chiapas, Mexico. Tickets are available at the door.